and welcome to episode 33 of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. I am your host, as always, Trey Whetstone, coming here from Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode, I'm doing the reverse or the flip side of the last episode, where I talked about 60s and 70s witch hunters. This time around, I'll be talking about the films focused more on the witches themselves. And yes, these are, in most cases, actual witches. In this episode, I have six movies to cover that will range from excellent to middling, but I think they all at least have something interesting to provide in the witch genre, and I think they are a little different and a little maybe lesser known than some of the other witch films. Now, I don't have a lot of information for some of these movies that just happen sometimes, especially with lesser known ones. The best thing we can have is like someone to put out a release of these, but even still, some of these are in box sets or something similar, and they don't have a lot of special features or information about them. But I'm going to jump right into these movies, and I will do them in chronological order, so it's not necessarily in order of quality or any other arbitrary order, it's just when they released. I'm not going to get into the titles right now. I can just do that as we go along here and introduce these movies one by one. Alright, the first is City of the Dead. This isn't to be confused with City of the Living Dead, the Fulci film. This is a 1960 film, and it's curious that this one never got a bigger following. I think it has in recent years, but let's go ahead and set up the background on this. So this project began life as a TV series that would star Boris Karloff. They got the money for the project from both TV producer Hannah Weinstein and the Nottingham Forest Football Club. So yeah, that's interesting that the some of the funding came from a football club in England, which, you know, today, I don't know what the status was around that now, but today is a Premier League team. Yeah, you don't see stuff like that very often when you're digging into this. Maybe it was more prevalent in the 60s, I don't know. The budget ended up being £45,000, which I don't think is a whole lot. Production began on the movie on October 12th of 1959. So let's keep this in mind as we go along, because one thing I pointed out, I think when I was talking to Jay a long time ago, it's been about a year now, pointed out that this one has some similarities to Psycho, And this went into production around the same time, and they released in the UK, at least, around the same time. I don't think there's any foul play there. I just think it's, you know, especially how tight Hitchcock keeps things to his chest, but I just think it's one of those phenomenons where we get two similar... They're not similar films at all in the grand scheme of things, but when we go to talk about the pushing of on-screen violence at the time, I think some raciness with, you know, women shown in their brawls, I believe, was in Psycho as well. And then there's another aspect of the film that is shared between the two. I won't go into which aspect, but yeah, they have some similarities. The movie was officially produced by Vulcan Productions, Despite this, it is still considered the first Amicus Productions film by some, since Milton Sabotsky and Max Rosenberg both took part in the production. The two would found Amicus two years after City of the Dead's release in 1962. It's said that some of the lines in the opening scene were removed from the American version, and these lines were said to have helped provide a reason behind the events that take place in the film, and to flesh out the plot structure a little bit more. The version I watched this time had those in it, so I'm pretty sure that this version isn't circulated anymore, the one where they cut out the lines, but you can see how if this is playing in America, maybe it's losing you plot-wise if you don't have all the details. Speaking of some of Christopher Lee's speech from the beginning of the film, Some of those lines are used in the Rob Zombie song, Dragula. And, you know, it's the words, you know, Rob Zombie famous for sampling stuff from horror movies. This is one of those, and it's the opening of 
Dragula. The movie released in the UK in September of 1960. It was released to the US a year later in 1961 under the title of Horror Hotel. You can still see that title out there if you search this one. This is a case where I don't mind either one. I think they both describe the plot well enough and are both, you know, they both sound fine. They're not ridiculous or ludicrous or anything, and they do relate to the film. So I don't mind either one. The movie pretty much became an afterthought and a forgotten film until VCI released it on DVD in 2001. So this is one that did get a US release, but unlike Psycho, which went on to a meteoric rise, this one kind of fell by the wayside and wasn't discovered until later. I think that's a theme with a lot of movies that are especially coming out now because we have so many films that I never thought would get releases just getting these beautiful pristine releases and these films of legend don't have to be legends anymore. A lot of times these revivals really do bring a film back to light and let us know about it and it seems like some of these, like this one, it feels one of those that feels like we've known about forever but a lot of people probably didn't see this in his original run and probably didn't see it until 2001. So it's great we have those niche labels that are doing the work of digging these things up, restoring them, and getting them out there in one way or another. I don't necessarily care on a lot of things if it has a solid set of features as long as we get the movie itself and have a way to watch it. And unfortunately, that's all I have on City of the Dead's background. We can go ahead and set this up and talk about the movie. It was directed by John Llewellyn Moxie and released in 1960 for the short running time of 78 minutes. The tagline reads, 300 years old, human blood keeps them alive forever. And the synopsis reads, A young college student arrives in a sleepy Massachusetts town to research witchcraft. During her stay at an eerie inn, she discovers a startling secret about the town and its inhabitants. You know, Letterboxd is bouncing back. That's a pretty good one. I feel like I've had some pretty bad ones from there recently, but good job on that. I'm going to say off the bat that for me, this one falls a little short of how some people rate it. I mean, I think it's a decent movie, and I'll get into talking about it a little bit, but I think that leaves a lot to be desired. I think the movie has a really good atmosphere, and I do like the setting up of the backstory, even if the backstory is pretty bland and generic. Now, we have to transport ourselves, though, to 1960. I don't think this was as big of a thing. We're talking, you know, witch movies have been around for a while, sure, but we weren't seeing witches all the time. But if you look elsewhere in 1960, there is a better black-and-white witch film in the form of Black Sunday with a much more interesting background. So the thing about... City of the Dead, is we've got a college student going out to research for a paper on witchcraft. Christopher Lee is her teacher, sends her to this place, said he's from there, really sets her up. But we see in the beginning of this film that something went down in this town. And she's going on this road. After she passes a gas station, it's almost like she's transported into another world, in this old world village. And that's when things really start to happen. The atmosphere is thick. I think the filming, the cinematography, everything to do with that is beautiful in this one. There's a lot of beautiful shots. There's a lot of beautiful scenes. The problem is, is again, the plot just kind of meanders almost. And I I like some of the characters. I think they do a good job with some of these characters. Um, I just don't think it's enough to carry the film. Now, I'm not going to be completely down on this. Like I said, I like all the aspects of the actual scenes and what things look like. And I think it does do a good job of slowly unfolding this story. The problem is there's just not much there of it. You have to recognize, though, coming to this later, yeah, there are some better films from the time for sure, but we've been introduced to so much and so many richer worlds since then. I don't want to write this one completely off. I think it's absolutely worth checking out and watching. I just think, and this is my second time through, so maybe I've come down on it a little bit. I do want to give it credit for everything it does right. I'm just saying I don't know if this is necessarily a home run or hitting it out of the park. 
as, you know, one of these other movies that I'll be talking about a little later. Also, yes, Christopher Lee is a part of this movie. Don't go in expecting you're going to get a ton of Christopher Lee here. He's here to do his job, and that's about it. You're not going to have, you know, a lot of Christopher Lee. I think there are some good parts of this plot, especially where it goes about midway through. I think there's a pretty good moment. There's another good character that really gets, you know, we get to delve into that character later in the movie, and I really like her. Other than that, a lot of, a couple of the other kids, especially from town, you know, the brother character and the boyfriend character of our main protagonist are kind of throwaway for me. They're not really great. There's not a whole lot to them. I think there's much more to the inhabitants of Whitewood. I think, you know, we get an apt backstory. We get enough there, but I feel like right now I'm just talking around in circles. What I really want to say about this one is if you haven't seen it, it's definitely worth checking out. I think people, I think for a majority of people out there, they still like it better than me, even though I'm going to come in with a decent score on this one. You know, I think it's absolutely worth watching. You just have to be in the right mood, and I think it sets the atmosphere. If you're going to watch this on a dark, stormy night, or you're going to watch this around Halloween time, I think that's perfect. I think it'll give you the good atmosphere that you're wanting. With that being said, I think I'm still going to come in around... I don't want to dock it too much, because it does do a lot of right. It does do a lot right. I feel like I'm sounding pretty negative here, but I'm still coming in around a 7. On City of the Dead, and if you haven't seen this one, it's an important part of history, in the very least, in film history. And that's what I'm here talking about, so check that one out. Now this next one's going to be interesting. It might be a first... Well, not really. I'm sure I've talked about it when I've gone through some of the career information of some of these filmmakers and actors and things like that. But I'm not actually going to talk about this movie and give a review of it just because it's been a while since I've seen it. I was just reminded of it when I was going through and looking up stuff for this episode. And I found some interesting information that goes along with this film and some background to it. So I wanted to throw this one in. It definitely fits within the category. So this is Night of the Eagle, or Burn Witch Burn, as it was known in the U.S. And let me give you some background on this. So the film is based on Fritz Lieber's novel, The Conjure Wife. Which I think was a pretty sought-after property. I think there are other stories based on that novel. Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont were fans of the novel and worked on the adaptation. Now, that should stand out to you if you are a genre fan, because Matheson is the author of things like I Am Legend, and Beaumont worked on stuff like The Twilight Zone. Matheson did a lot of screenwriting work as well for science fiction stuff. They're both very revered names in sci-fi around this time. AIP was interested in this project and ended up co-producing it with independent artists. George Baxt was brought in to write the final script, and Baxt was the one who was actually responsible for the original TV series version of City of the Deads, the one we just talked about. This will come as a total shock, but Peter Cushing was initially sought after to play the lead. I feel like Cushing and Lee are the names that come up in this time period for almost any horror movie, or um, Vincent Price if you want to throw that in there as well. He turned down the offer, and Peter Wingard ended up being cast in the role at the last minute. I'm curious how this film would have turned out if Cushing was in it. I don't think I would have liked it any more any less, but that is just an exercise in futility because that's never going to happen, so let's move on. The movie was actually rated X in the UK, even though it was rated much less harshly in the US. I think that's a sign of the times that this movie was rated X. I don't know if it had anything to do with the, you know, there's some accusations thrown against one of the characters here. I don't know if it has anything to do with that kind of content. I can't remember exactly because it's been years since I've watched this one, but it eventually was dropped from an X to a 15 rating and then again to a 12 rating in the UK on a later home video release. And the last little bit I have on this one is in the US theaters, a prologue was added in which actor Paul Frees chanted a spell to protect the audience from harm. Theatergoers were 
also given a pack of salt and the words to an incantation to keep them safe while watching. Man, it sounds like it just used to be a lot of fun to go to the movies, especially especially back in this time period. And I think a little bit of that is captured in Popcorn from 1991, but those kind of gimmicks are just interesting to me. Now I'll tell you just a little bit about Night of the Eagle. I'll set it up a little bit here, and then I'll give a just a general recommendation for it, but I don't feel comfortable reviewing this one because I haven't seen it in so long. So it was directed by Sidney Hayers and came out in 1962, ran for 90 minutes. The tagline is, Do the undead demons of hell still arise to terrorize the world? And the synopsis reads, A skeptical college professor discovers that his wife has been practicing magic for years. Like the learned, rational fellow he is, he forces her to destroy all her magical charms and protective devices and stop that foolishness. Uh, The last sentence of this is nonsense, but basically his life starts to fall apart once these charms have been destroyed. Yeah, I remember this one being okay. Um, I don't want to give a rating on it. I think it's definitely worth a watch, but I would put it as more of a lower priority watch. I will say I think it's cool because it's a nice change of pace and you get this modern witch story. You know, set in modern times, so that's really cool. I'd say it's definitely worth checking out. It's not one of my favorites, but it's an interesting movie for sure. And now we get to the bona fide classic of the episode. And this is one I feel a lot of people probably haven't seen. This is the first one I'm going to crack into on the any of these episodes as far as the All the Haunts BRs folk horror set that Severin put out. And... This is just the tip of the iceberg, this episode and the last, that is, for the folk horror stuff. There's definitely a full-on folk horror retrospective in the works and something I really want to do. So that'll definitely happen at some point, but for now, just know that this one is in that box set. And this one is Il Demonio, or The Demon. Brunello Rondi was the director and co-writer on this one. He was a frequent collaborator with Federico Fellini, who is a major figure in Italian film, if you're not aware. This film was thought to be lost or forgotten until the recent shine given to it by the Severin box set that I had just mentioned. It never played in U.S. theaters, and no one is really sure if it even played outside of Europe. So this is definitely one of those deeper cuts and why I love these box sets that are put out and just these individual releases, and we'll talk about another one of those in just a minute. Dahlia Lavi stars in this one and was actually a trained dancer. She used her dancing prowess to perform a type of spider walk during her audition, and it won her the lead role. Now, when we mention something like a spider walk, you may be drawing comparisons between this and The Exorcist, and you'd be right to do so. I would say the spider walk is even done better in this film 10 years earlier, because Lavi does it all herself. It's completely her physicality, and it's her prowess as a dancer that kind of pulls this off. In the version used in The Exorcist, they used effects to make the scene work, and it In the demon, it just feels much more natural. And again, that scene, it's... And not saying anyone ripped off anyone once again, because they probably didn't even see the demon. There's probably a 99% chance they've never seen Il Demonio uh, when they were making The Exorcist or writing the book about The Exorcist. And I don't even think that effect in The Exorcist was even released until a much later cut of that film. Rondi actually based this movie on a supposed real-life case of possession, and Lavi was able to meet with the possessed person prior to filming to get kind of a, a sense and an inspiration for this. The writers primarily used the works of Italian anthropologist Ernesto De Martino to provide a foundation for the superstitions, culture, and rituals of southern Italy. So that's just more background. They're using this anthropologist and to try to get a feel of 
how people in this region of Italy behave, how they deal with superstitions, how they would react in these situations, to give it a much more real feel. And I think they succeed in that. All right, and now we have to talk about this one because this was the surprise of the episode, the surprise of the year so far. This was an incredible movie. Directed by Brunello Rondi, it was released in 1963 and ran for 95 minutes. Tagline reads, A night she wakes up bound to the bed and with the bleeding body. The revenge of the devil will not delay. Yeah, that's kind of a interesting tagline. The synopsis reads, Purificata, a young peasant living in a small village in southern Italy, is considered a witch by the locals, up to a point where she is condemned to a terrible sentence as a punishment to her supposedly evil deeds. That doesn't necessarily do this justice. You have Purif, who is this girl, and the way this movie starts off, it's so bizarre, and I didn't know how I was going to feel about it in the end, given what I was seeing up front. But, once you settle into this one, I think it becomes much more digestible, it comes much more straightforward, and I think it's a really great film and a lost classic. I would put this up there with the works of Bava if we're talking Italian horror of the time. I mean, this is an incredible film in my estimation. Purif basically is in love with this guy named Antonio, and... Antonio really doesn't want anything to do with her, whether that's based on the reputation she has, he doesn't want to associate with her, or any number of factors, really. Either way, we get her kind of casting these spells and doing these rituals to try to get Antonio to love her. And I will say, she never gives up, no matter how vicious and evil Antonio is to her throughout the film, she never gives up on the guy. She keeps going after him, and keeps pursuing this man. I just think Purif is such a great character. I think she really delivers. I mean, she could be very well seen as some kind of villain or evil character in this film, because she's the perceived witch. She's really not. Purif is just so sympathetic as a character, and you just really connect with her, and you want to see her happy, and you want to see her succeed, and you're rooting for your Purif through this entire thing. You know, her family can be terrible to her, everyone around her can be terrible to her, they can kick her out, and all this stuff. It doesn't matter, you're still so invested in her character. Another big thing with this movie are the, the shots and the scenes and the cinematography in this thing. When they're focusing in on faces, and there's this shot of Purif at night, and she's doing her very best Barbara Steele in Black Sunday, you know, it's a close-up on her face, or, you know, we're talking about something from, like, The Girl Who Knew Too Much, or one of those Bava films, it's just striking, and it just helps convey how sympathetic this character is to get up on her face and see, like, how she's reacting. This film is perfect in black and white, I wouldn't want it any other way. We also get some interesting religion stuff tied in, and I mean, there's this confession in a public square where everyone's kind of, this is after Purif has said, okay, if you guys are all going to treat me like a witch or demon, I'm going to play along with it. I'm going to say, yes, I've committed these evil things, I need this thing out of me, and we're not sure as a viewer if she's possessed, if she is a witch, if she's consorting with demons, we're not sure if any of this is actual real or if it's not. It's kind of that it's like a mystical thing, like, it could be, it could not be, there's some coincidences there. Either way, I think it's a really cool movie. But she confesses this, and we're back to this public square thing. And it's everyone's kind of shouting out their sins in this town square, and these people are yelling these horrendous things. And then she says, you know, she's a witch, she's consorted with Satan and all this stuff, And she's treated like the worst one of the bunch, and some of the stuff these other people have said is just, like, ridiculous. And you're like, oh, we're treating her like she's the worst thing here? It's just kind of insane. But I I don't know how else to convey this, to just say that this movie is an absolute masterpiece, in my estimation. I mean, it's... Okay, I don't want to say masterpiece, because that gives the illusion that this is, like, a perfect film or anything. 
But for me, this was an incredible film. This was something I wasn't expecting. And even watching the first part of this movie, I didn't expect to be as drawn in as I was. But Purif as a character is incredible. All the characters in this thing are great. The way they portray the townspeople is great. I mean, it's borderline... (laughs) It's bordering on a very high score for me, I'm saying. The demon is just an incredible character study of Purif, whether she's a witch or not, or has been possessed by a demon or not. And the hardships she goes through and how she tries to overcome those is just an incredible journey. I can't recommend Il Demonio or the demon enough to anyone. You should be able to find it out there pretty easily. It's on Shudder right now, at least. And it's in that Severin box set if you have that. If you don't have that and you are in any way interested in folk horror, you absolutely need to pick that up when it's on sale. It's a, it is a little pricey. I picked it up on sale, and it's not too bad, especially for the amount of movies you get and the kind of features you get with those. But I'm really struggling. Um, I'm teetering here on this one, what to give it. I think I'm going to ultimately come down at a 9 for the demon. I, I almost want to go higher. But for now, um, I'll keep it where it is. Just keep in mind, this isn't going to be a very visceral or fast-paced horror movie. This is an old-school, very slow-paced international horror movie that really lets you get in touch with the characters, and it approaches the horror in a different way, but I definitely think it's there. So this is an easy recommend. If you're going to watch any movie in this group that I'm talking about today, Pretty much any of the ones in a lot of the groups that I've talked about recently, this is one of the absolute best. So definitely check it out. Okay, up next we have one that was just recently released in the Gothic Fantastico for Italian Gothic Tales or something like that that Arrow Video put out. And this one's called The Witch or La Strega in Amore. Now, unfortunately, I couldn't find a lot on this one or the next one, but I do want to talk about these next couple movies for a little bit. The film is based on the novel Aura by Carlos Fuentes, and that is A-U-R-A. Fuentes didn't like this adaptation of his novel and wished that Luis Buñuel or Carlos Saura would have made it instead. They were both interested in adapting this one. Instead of those two, this one would end up being directed by Damiano Damiani. Most would know Damiani from Amityville 2, The Possession. I think that is his most famous film. The film would end up being released on September 11th of 1966 in Italy and would go on to make 203 million lira. It was released in the U.S. by Gigi Productions in 1969, so a few years later, but this one actually did come out. This is absolutely, with this gothic fantastico, was the first time I'd heard anything about this movie, and the same goes for the other ones in that set. It's a pretty good little set of, you know, these Italian gothic movies from the, I believe they're all from the 60s, but it's a pretty good collection, and I don't think any of them are great, um, including this one, but this one's at least interesting. I would say this one ended up being pretty much the favorite out of the set for me. Now, I'll go ahead and set up the synopsis and everything. So, this one was released in 1966, ran for 109 minutes. And the synopsis reads, A historian goes to a castle library to translate some ancient erotic literature. While there, he discovers what he believes to be supernatural forces at work. That's a pretty broad summary. This guy seems like a kind of like a player and a womanizer, but this older lady asked him to come and translate these texts, and he basically doesn't know if he wants to do it, and then he sees who is supposedly her daughter, and is a very attractive woman, and he kind of changes his mind, and this is his story of how he gets tricked by this witch. And I think it's really... The problem is, is I kept waiting for this one to go into horror. I don't know if it ever does fully veer into horror. 
but it is definitely a witch movie. I think it's fun. I think the characters are good, and the back and forth with the characters is pretty cool. And the ultimate, you know, what the witch is doing here is pretty cool as well. I just think I kept waiting for something more to put this one over the edge and, you know, move it up the scales for me, but I never really got a sense of that. I'm pretty, I, I mean, the thing is, is when you get into the gothic films of Italy in the 60s, a lot of them are a dime a dozen and they're very, you know, same-ish. They're very similar in their plot and their structure. Not necessarily the plot and the structure, but some of them there's just not a whole lot going on. And I think that's the case with The Witch. I think this one manages to stand out from those a little bit. And I do enjoy it, especially with the dueling roles of Rosanna Schifiano and Sarah Ferrati. And there is some stuff to like here. I mean, there's a good atmosphere in this house they live in, and there's a good dynamic between the characters, like I was saying. I would say, you know, Gothic Fantastico is a hard one in general, and The Witches as well, because it's kind of hard to recommend paying that much for these movies that are fun and enjoyable, but I think they can become forgettable and maybe be one-time watches. I would urge you to check these out on the Arrow Player if you're not interested in spending that kind of money. And I, like I said, for my money, I think The Witch is the best one. I There's still one I haven't watched yet, but of the three I've watched, I like this one the best. It has some surprises, and it's a good solid film. It's just nothing that's going to stand out. End of the day, I think I'm going to come in around a 7 on this one, and definitely recommend it as a one-time rental you might end up watching it again to see some other stuff in it. I know I'll probably watch this one again. This might be the one I revisit the most in that set. But yeah, that is 1966's The Witch. Alright, we're cruising right along on this episode. And we're going to move into The Witches. Not to be confused with The Witch. The problem with a lot of these movies is they have very similar titles. There's so many movies called The Witch. There are several movies called The Witches. And this one has nothing to do with the other film version of The Witches that are based off a novel. This one's not in that same league. So this one's actually based off the novel The Devil's Own by author Peter Curtis. Also, a couple of little facts, because I said there's not a whole lot with this one. This was one of the very last Hammer movies to be filmed at the famous Bray Studios before they moved on from it. And this was also Joan Fontaine's final movie appearance. So, you know, I'm a huge Joan Fontaine fan from Rebecca, but this was the last movie performance that she did. It was released in London on November 21st, 1966, and it premiered in the U.S. on January 25th of 1967, so not too long afterwards. Okay, so The Witches is definitely not the best film on this list. But it's certainly one of the more interesting ones. Let me go ahead and set this up. It is directed by Cyril Frankel and was released in 1966, ran for 89 minutes. The tagline reads, A stranger in a town that has lost its mind. If she's not careful, she may lose hers too. And the synopsis is, Following a nervous breakdown, Gwen takes up the job of head teacher in the small village of Hatteby. There, she can benefit from the tranquility and peace enabling her to recover fully. But under the facade of idyllic country life, she slowly unearths the frightening reality of village life, in which the inhabitants are followers of a menacing satanic cult, with the power to inflict indiscriminate evil and death if crossed. This movie begins when Joan Fontaine's character, we see her in some kind of other country in what we assume to be the Caribbean, and, or, you know, so I'm not really sure, I can't remember if they say where it was or not, but she essentially gets, she's teaching down there, but her home essentially gets invaded by these voodoo uh, worshippers, or whatever they are. They do voodoo, and they're kind of going in there 
to, uh, I think, basically just scare her off. But she has a mental breakdown because of it. She leaves, and when she's better, she takes up residence in this town and is going to be the teacher for the town. And it's a very small little town. Now, what we get here is mostly drama with a hint of voodoo and witchcraft and supernatural type stuff. We don't typically see a lot of films about voodoo, and I love when we do see that. You know, you have things like Serpent and the Rainbow, or if you go back to I Walked with a Zombie, and that type of stuff. But voodoo is pretty much underserved. What happens next is, you know, there are a series of events in this small town that occur, and they're basically unexplainable, and she slowly starts to peel back what's going on. As she does that, we meet some really interesting characters, I think, and we certainly get probably one of the most interesting sequences I've seen in a film, and I use interesting, not necessarily in a good way, but there is some kind of a witch's gathering in this film, and boy, is it something to behold. I think it's cool how they try to pick apart her sanity, and there's one character, one set of characters standing up for her, and the other set of characters that are kind of on the other side. You don't know actually which ones are going to have her best interest in mind at the end of the day. It's a good movie. It's a good, solid movie. As a horror movie, I think it lacks a lot until we get nearer to the end. I think there's some... Good stuff with voodoo that goes through it, but a lot of it is, like I said, just drama. But it's a solid and it's a good drama throughout. I mean, it's not like it's boring or anything like that. It's just kind of fine as a movie. And then when we get to the spectacle at the end, there's some good and some bad. It's memorable, but I don't know if I would say it's, you know, a net positive in that regard. I think I come down on this one at around a 6. I think it's good enough to watch, especially with the voodoo angle. And there are some cool moments for sure. Your mileage may vary. I mean, you might like this one better than I do. I'd say right now, of the ones I've seen, it's much more in that lower tier of Hammer movies where it is just kind of a drama with some supernatural elements thrown in or supposed supernatural elements. I'm not going to give... Anything away there. Either way, for better or for worse, that is The Witches starring the great Joan Fontaine. That brings us to the final witch movie of this episode, and that is Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga is something I had watched back in October, and it was a first-time watch. I checked that out on the Blue Underground Blu-ray. There's surprisingly a lot more on this movie than most of the other films that I talked about in this episode. So let's go ahead and set this up, and then I will talk about the movie itself in a little bit. The film was based on Guido Krepix's Valentina comic series, which, from what I understand it, is an erotic comic series. Krepix had worked on storyboarding before for the film Deadly Sweet, which was directed by Tinto Brass. So not only was he working on this comic series, but he also got had a little bit of film experience. Brass considered adapting one of the Valentina storylines, but didn't think he'd be able to accurately bring Krepix's visual style to film. I think that's always been a worry, and why we see such stylized entries of these films based on comic books, is it is very hard to match that. It's maybe easier with something like um, Kick-Ass or Scott Pilgrim, which we've seen I think I believe the the Kingsman Secret Service was also that. Those are very stylish films and kind of bring that comic book style to life. It's a little harder back in the 70s, I'm sure. Corrado Farina was also a fan of Krepix's work and even made a short documentary about his comic series in 1970. Farina felt that no other comic adaptations at the time had managed to deepen the relationship between the comics and film and he was disappointed by all those that he had seen. He wanted to take a shot at it with Baba Yaga, and decided he would focus more on the fantastical elements as opposed to the erotic ones that were more present in the comics. Although I would say there's more than the fair share of the erotic moments in this one. 
The film had issues with keeping producers. Turi Vasil was the original producer, but eventually handed the duties over to Franco Cometary. Cometary would later drop out after the script was finished, which caused Farina to sign a deal with the production company 14 Luglio Cinematografica. Casting didn't go as planned either for Farina. He didn't really like Isabel de Funes in the lead role, but wasn't really given much of a choice. He also wanted the Italian singer Ornella Bononi to play Baba Yaga, but that didn't work out either. And Venani was supposedly a big figure in the Italian music industry at the time. He cast Anne Haywood in the role of Baba Yaga, who ended up leaving right before filming and had to be quickly replaced by Carol Baker. Some of you will know Carol Baker from her other Italian films. For example, the ones that she did with Umberto Lindsay, the Giallo series, but she's also done some American films as well. I will say that Baker, they did a really good job of making her look almost unrecognizable because they make her so different looking, and she kind of does look like a, a little bit like a witch in this film. And I think they did a good job there of taking a character that I, or an actor that I was familiar with, and transforming her into Baba Yaga. That's not the only Italian film vet who would be in this film, as George Eastman was cast as the role of Arno. Now Eastman, this was before he had went on some of his gorier films later in the 80s, but he's here nonetheless. Farina actually had no previous knowledge of him as an actor, and Eastman basically got the role because he looked the part and felt like he could fit into it. After post-production was done, Farina took off on a vacation. This was a big mistake because when he got back, the producers had cut almost 30 minutes of the film because they thought it just moved too slow. The problem is, is they got rid of a lot of this and there wasn't an original print left. He worked with his assistant director to try and rework it, but the original vision for the film couldn't be restored. This is just a shame because I think the film overall is pretty good and entertaining, but I think it could do with just a little bit more, and it's a shame that maybe we could have got that if they would have let it play out. The Italian Film Censors Board did request a couple of cuts to be made to remove full nudity, ahead of the film's 1973 release. Okay, let's set up Baba Yaga, which is a very out-there film. So, this was directed by Corrado Farina, released in 1973 for 91-minute runtime. The synopsis reads, Carol Baker stars in this psychedelic shocker about a mysterious witch who casts a spell over attractive, youthful fashion photographer Valentina Rosselli. Thrust into a world of sadism, Valentina must figure out whether the torture being inflicted on her is because of one woman's twisted agenda or a curse known as Baba Yaga. That's an interesting summary. Yeah, basically you are, we are introduced to Defunes' character, and she is this fashion photographer, and she has, oh, a group of friends, and Arno, who is played by George Eastman, is uh, kind of after her. He's He wants to pursue her, and romantically, by the way, not in a violent way or anything. But... She runs across by chance one night, this woman who calls herself Baba Yaga, who gives her a ride back and takes something from her. It, it's really weird, man. This is a very, um, let me just say, right off the bat, that this movie is just pure 70s Euro sleaze, which means it is right up my alley. I will give a word of warning that this isn't going to be for everyone. Up front, I want you to know that, because it is very much in line. I love 70s films, or 70s horror films. I like a lot of the the films in this vein, in this genre. This is where, you know, I'm getting mixed up between some of the vampire films, and some of the witch films, and some of the, you know, all the different types of films that were going on that were very much more sensual and that kind of stuff in this time period. I'm very into that just because, not not because of the eroticism, the sensualness, all that kind of stuff. It's just I feel like they're slow-moving films. There's a lot of dialogue, there's a lot of character building, 
and there's a lot of cool imagery and stuff in these movies because these directors are doing stuff that's on the cutting edge. They're out there doing experimental stuff. And that's what I like about the films of genre Lin. That's what I like about the, you know, this film. That's what I like about something like Daughters of Darkness. All those types of films from this time period that have that same feel to them definitely helps that they're European. I think that gives them a distinct feel. You know, it's the same thing with Giallos and why I like the Giallos. I think they're very much all in the same vein of those 70s European horror films. That's why I opened up the show, you know, the second series of episodes I did was on this time period in international cinema because I love that. I will say that I love the cast in this. You think that someone like DeFunes would get overshadowed by Carol Baker and George Eastman, but she really doesn't. I find it strange that they put Carol Baker in the first line of that synopsis because I think that DeFunes' character carries it well enough, and I think she is the lead and the focal point of this film. All three are great, though, don't get me wrong. I love the... the. It's kind of a unique story with this, and also just the style. I mean, when she first meets with Baba Yaga under that kind of chance encounter, it is so striking, and I feel like it's very unique, and it kind of pulls you in from there. And after that, we're thrown into like a waking nightmare as the heroine kind of struggles to determine what's real and what's in her head. You know, does she have a cursed camera? Are her friends dying of things that she's responsible for? Is Baba Yaga doing all this to her? We don't know. There's just some other cool elements with this doll that goes on in the film and how that plays into it. I don't know how much of this comes from the comics that Krepix wrote, but there's just such cool imagery. I'll say a lot of the horror ends up being psychological, it ends up being in their, whether it's in her head or not, and there's not a ton of straightforward stuff. There's some very weird and interesting stuff that goes on near the end of this movie, but I think it provides for a fitting conclusion to how the rest of this one plays out. My biggest complaint is I just wish there was more to this story, And that may have had to do with the cuts that were made. And we'll never know. We're never going to get a longer copy of this one. This one's just, we've got what we've got. We got a Blue Underground release, which is great. And we have to be happy with that. We're never going to be able to delve more into what could have been with this one. At least, I don't think so. I don't think anyone's sitting out there. You know, I don't think Tarantino has a print of this sitting in his house or anything. Baba Yaga is a really fun film. You just have to know what you're getting into. Maybe fun isn't the right word. It's fun in the sense that it's cool to explore these characters in the story, in the world. And I almost wish there was more of this Valentina character going through some of the stuff she went... I'm, I can only imagine what she had went through in some of these comics. So, you know, this Baba Yaga story is just one piece of that from what I understand. So that would have been pretty interesting... I'm thinking of, and I know it's probably not even in the line of that, but I'm picturing this as like an erotic Constantine or something. I think it has a lot of potential, but we're never going to see any more of that. That's fine. I'm happy with what we got. Just wish there was a little more. Um, you need to know what you're going into, just like you would with a real John Lynn film, just like you would with a, a Jess Franco film. Any of those types of films, you've got to know what you're going in for. And if you do, and you're into that kind of stuff, I think you're going to enjoy it. I'd say I'm going to come in around a 7.5 on Baba Yaga. I almost want to go higher, but on rewatch, I don't think it held up quite as well as it did my first time. Uh, I think it did. I think it's a a solid 7.5. I'm going to stick with that. That's really going to bring the talk of these witch movies to a close. I think... And I apologize for the brevity of this episode a little bit, but in both these episodes, but i am got a vacation coming around this time, so I'm trying to have something at least out there for people to listen to, even if it's a little shorter and a little, you know, the, the scope of these episodes hasn't been huge. It's just picking some movies, let's dig into them and talk about them a little bit. And that's okay to do every once in a while, because I really wanted to talk about this set of movies. Just happened that, you know, some of them... I'd been watching a decent amount of these in the last few months, and I was like, oh, well, it makes sense to do an episode on that. 
certainly won't be the last of the witch talk as I will be doing a folk horror episode on that genre at some point but it's just fun watching the 60s and 70s witch and witch hunter type movies I think there's enough of a thread between them now you're gonna have various differences you're gonna have something like I don't think you can put the wicker man up against something like Baba Yaga. Those are very different films. They're very weird, but in very different ways. I don't know. Maybe they're maybe they're not that far off. Um, I would say maybe Witchfinder General has, or Mark of the Devil has something less in common with Baba Yaga than The Wicker Man. But it's just, I feel like these, what, 10 films that I go over over these couple episodes, most of them are pretty strong. And I've always been into the witch stuff. Everyone knows I love Suspiria. Not talking about something as high profile as that. But anyway, I just want to leave you with a little uh, note on that. Is if you haven't checked out these movies I've been talking about the last couple episodes, what do you got to lose? There's some really good ones, especially if you haven't seen something like Blood on Satan's Claw or The Wicker Man or The Demon. I would go and search those out first. Those are fantastic films and among some of my favorites. I mean, they'd probably all be in my top 50 horror films of all time at this point or maybe top 100. I don't know where it looks like now. That's a topic for another day. But that concludes the Witch and Witch Hunter talk for now. Coming up next, I hope to get in an episode with Greg Bazzelli from Monsters in the Mosh Pit, where we just kind of shoot the breeze and talk about some topics regarding the horror genre today. But before I go for this episode, I'm going to do another quick round of watch list roulette and i'm continuing to go through the horror movies of 1984 at least the ones that have been on my watch list that i haven't gotten to unfortunately for this one i came up with a big bust and that is murder rock dancing death this is a lucio fulci film and for him uh, results may vary i like a few fulci films but honestly most of the stuff i've seen from him is just average to not great in my opinion at least and I I don't know for some reason I was excited for Murder Rock but in reality maybe I shouldn't have been given my history with Fulci and honestly I'm not too excited I've still got a couple more Fulci films that I need to get through not too excited about them because honestly it never fails. Uh, it's funny with this one. Uh, let me go ahead and set this up first before I get too far along. So this was released in 1984, runs for 93 minutes. The tagline says, save the last dance for hell. That's yeah, that's all right. That's not bad. Pretty cheesy, but the synopsis reads, the world of dance can be brutal. The rehearsals are grueling. The competition is fierce. At the Arts for Living Center in New York City, The best of the best are dying for a part in a major production, but only a select few will be chosen. The selection process seems to be at the hands of a mysterious killer who pierces women's bare breast with a hat pin puncturing their hearts. Ambition and jealousy appear to be the motive, which makes everybody a suspect. What a synopsis. Uh, Honestly, when I first heard, or when I first saw, I guess, a synopsis for this thing, it kind of led me astray, and it wasn't really true to what the film actually would be. It made it seem like a, and I mean it is kind of a giallo, really, but it made it seem kind of in the vein of, you know, one of those dance school movies, which, again, it is, but it's just not very good. I'll tell you, for the first, I don't know, maybe I think it's five or six minutes of the film. I don't think anyone even speaks any words. It's just a couple of dance numbers, a couple of musical numbers to start with. Which makes sense. But unfortunately, the acting is terrible in this movie. It's it's pretty bad. And, I mean, that kind of fits in with what we've seen from later Fulci as well. But, man, it really took me out of it. The other problem is, and the main problem is this, is anytime you start to get any bit of interest in a character, you know, they're either off or they're kind of forgotten about in the story. Also, can we talk about that killing method? 
I was surprised to see this was Fulci because at least the version that I watched of this, and this is not an easy film to track down, I will say, but at least the version that I watched was pretty, I mean, pretty bloodless. There's a lot of nudity for sure, but when you get into the violence and stuff, it's very tame and very like, I don't know, the killing method is, I guess it's unique, but it's kind of underwhelming. And so are the kill and death scenes in this. For the first time when watching a Fulci movie, instead of being turned off by the gore and the violence, it was actually just kind of turned off of how boring this film was. Even in the bad Fulci movies, the ones that I don't like and think are pretty bad, they're usually at least entertaining or, you know, there's something there to keep your attention. Murder Rock just doesn't have that. And honestly, even something like Ghost House, which came out a few years later, and, you know, that has no connection with Fulci, but I think that's a much more entertaining bad movie than this one is. I mean, there's... The plot and the characters are just very, you know, paper-thin. I think the reveal at the end was trying to be really clever. I think they thought they were being clever here. It's not great. I was also disappointed from the musical standpoint because because really, I mean, it was Keith Emerson who did this who also was responsible for Inferno. And I think the music in Inferno is so much better than what we got here. I think the music in Murder Rock is pretty bad, honestly. I will say there are moments that stand out where it's almost wanting to pull you in, but then it just kind of falls flat. And that's really the story with this whole thing. It's just kind of boring. It's not really, I mean, it kind of is offensive in the sense that the acting's bad and not a lot good going on with this one. I I don't really have a lot more to say on Murder Rock. Murder Rock is pretty dismal as a film. It's not really entertaining. It's not really, you know, so off the wall that it'll keep your interest in. It's kind of just there, and that's a big problem. So, I don't know. I'm going to be a little generous. I guess there were some cool scenes that happened, and there are some characters and sequences that I liked. Um, There's one with a babysitter that I think is pretty well played out in that classic you know, Italian horror film sense. I think, and unfortunately, again, I'm going to have to cut this one a little short um, with this review because I just don't want to keep dogging on this movie. But Murder Rock for me is going to be around a five, I think, if I'm being generous. And I'm going to say for maybe for Fulci fans, this is a watch. But for everyone else, just kind of stay away from this one unless you're so curious that you have to dive in. Murder Rock's just not a great movie. Well, that's going to wrap up this shorter than normal episode of Screaming Through the Ages. You can follow the podcast over on Twitter at Screaming Ages. There's also a Facebook group if Facebook's your thing. And that is just Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast over there. If you're enjoying the show, I ask that you spread the word or leave a review on the podcast service of your choice. You can send an email like a few of you had and get in touch with the show at ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com. You can go and leave a voicemail at 740-297-6556. And with all that being said, keep your eyes on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson. <laughs> <laughs>